as we go through the book of Daniel now, um, we're not going to be going through it verse by verse, but just picking out certain verses as we've read the text already and kind of just follow through it more in terms of narratively. But as we kind of dive in here, I just want us to have clarity today as we look at our text that it would be very easy for us to get caught up with Daniel and his three friends and assuming that they would be the main characters um, in this story. Because of the difficulties that they face, um, Daniel is the only character in the whole Bible other than Jesus that shows no character flaw. <laughs> He's also the one writing. <laughs> so, yeah, Daniel's intention, it isn't to write about himself. It isn't even to write about his own resolve. He's not concerned with narrating about his actions or the actions of his friends. Daniel's intent is instead to focus on what God does. And he makes this explicitly clear in this first chapter. Because the three verses that we're going to see today, verses 2, verses 9, and verses 17, tell us clearly that God gave something. That God was the one who did something. Not so much what Daniel did in verse 8, which is true, which is our obedience... But our obedience only fits within God's sovereignty and His complete plan and control. Amen? That He is the one who is leading and guiding all things. The book of Daniel, it points us to a God who reveals His glory in the midst of our difficult circumstances. Even in the midst of when His people sin and turn away from them, God shows Himself consistently to be faithful. My prayer and hope for us is over these next couple of months, when we go through the book of Daniel, is that we would be encouraged and that we would be mindful to remember to build an unshakable trust in God, regardless of the circumstances that we're facing. How many of you know that it's really easy for us to trust in God when everything is going well? It's more challenging to trust in God when we stand before challenges and circumstances that are out of our control and when we don't know what to do. And yet God proves himself again and again and again to be faithful. The book of Daniel doesn't center on Daniel and his friends. It centers around God and his glory. You see, Daniel shows us that kingdoms and kings will rise and fall. That there will be those in the present and in the future who will come and who will go. Yet God will never be destroyed and he will carry his people to the ends of his desires and of his purposes for our lives. It is important that we understand this. Because this is what we need to stand on when we find ourselves in difficult and challenging situations ourselves. Amen? And this is exactly what we see happening right here in Daniel chapter 1. Our first point. An uncompromising God. Verses 1 to 8, our key verse is verse 2. Look at what God does. And our brother Madhu already mentioned this. Verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shniar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. 
here's the setting. King Nebuchadnezzar is on an expansion campaign. He has just defeated the Egyptian army, and now he's moving into Syria and into the southern part of Israel to take over the region of Judah. He comes in, and he takes hold of King Jehoiakim in the whole province. And now the people are led away. Yet this is the plan of God. And this is difficult many times for us to hear that God would allow difficult situations and circumstances to come into our lives. But this moment in Judah's history was actually prophesied a hundred years before by the prophet Isaiah. Hezekiah, king of Judah, he chose to trust in the Babylonians instead of in God. You see, Hezekiah was seeking to become allies with the Babylonians so that both of them together could resist the Assyrian Empire, who was the powerhouse at the time. He foolishly put his trust in the Babylonians, and so they send an ambassador from Babylon. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, the king shows him all of his storehouses, all of his riches, all of his gold and silver in order to establish a partnership that would be mutually beneficial to both Judah and the Babylonians. Yet this is sin. Because King Hezekiah is not supposed to trust in the Babylonians. He's instead supposed to trust in the living God. And this is what Isaiah the prophet says in 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 17 and 18. Look at what he says. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, verse 18. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now 100 years later, God's word has come to pass. And he gives King Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. You see, God never compromises his word. God is always faithful to what he says. He never changes. And we could see, even as Madhu was sharing in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, as God stands before the people of Israel, he tells them clearly, if you follow my commands and you obey, I will bless you. But if you choose not to follow my commands and disobey, I will punish you. And one of the punishments that God told Israel that they would face would be that they would be under the rule of pagan nations. And now this is exactly what we see happening in our text. God, though he brings punishment to his children out of love, the day will come when he will rescue them. How many of you guys here are parents? 
How many of you know that one of the responsibilities that you and I have before God in our children is to discipline them? Amen? And Scripture is very clear that God does this with His children for the sake of our holiness and for the sake of our righteousness. This is what he says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 5b and 11. And it's important that we understand this because this is exactly what we see happening here with Israel in the Old Testament. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? For you are not left without discipline in whom all have participated. Then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we have respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our, for our what? For our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, to those who have been trained by it. There is purpose in God disciplining his children then when they disobey. God disciplines those that he loves. And this is exactly what we see God doing here to his people, Judah. And he does so by actually giving them over to a foreign nation to be led captive. God does this. In his faithfulness and out of love for his people. You see, the purpose of discipline is so that we would become holy the way God is holy. It's so that we could experience his peace of righteousness in our lives because the Lord disciplines those that he loves. It may seem like Brother Madhu said, that this has been the will and the work and the mighty hand of King Nebuchadnezzar, but it is not. This is God's doing. God has been the one who gave Judah and King Jehoiakim into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar. And when King Nebuchadnezzar comes back to Babylon, he divests the temple of all its, its vessels. And he brings all the gold and the silver with him to Shniar. And he places all of it in his own storehouses. In the storehouses of his pagan gods. And it seems as if the God of Israel were weak. Right now, God is a loser. Because Judah has lost. And yet God is accomplishing his plans and his purposes. Yet God has not changed. He is faithful to his people and he will redeem them. I want you to know that there may be times in your life 
where maybe God is nowhere to be found. Yet I want you to understand that God is actively at work without you even knowing, accomplishing his plans and purposes in your life and in the whole world. I've said from the beginning when COVID started, God isn't in heaven scratching his head wondering what's going on in the world. He is in complete control of your life. He knows exactly what you're going through. He has permitted it to come your way and he's using it to grow you in character so that you would become more holy, becoming like him, so that you can experience the peace of his righteousness in your life. Please don't forget that. I encourage you to go through your Bible and to see if you can find one character in Scripture who does not suffer. Who does not go through hardship. Who does not go through rejection. Who does not feel isolated or lonely. So Judah is led captive into Babylon. And now there is this reprogramming phase. The deportation from Judah happens in three stages. And Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are brought in the first deportation in 605 B.C. And King Nebuchadnezzar has very clear parameters for the candidates that are going to be serving in his court. He's looking for four things. They need to be of royal descent. They need to be physically attractive. They need to be intelligent. And they need to be socially able to lead. These are the four qualifications that these men need to have. We see this in verse 3, if you're following along with me. These men have no choice. They have been dragged into Babylon against their will, removed from their homes, their country, and their culture. And Madu is 100% right. The text says it uses the word youths. It is very likely that Daniel and his three friends are somewhere between the ages of 14 and 16. Very, very young men. And Nebuchadnezzar has a plan. These young Hebrews are going to go through a brainwashing process with the hopes that they will no longer be Hebrew, but now that they will become Babylonians. This is a forced assimilation program. Why? Because King Nebuchadnezzar knows that the best way to control the enslaved people is by raising people from within that own people group so that those in their own people group can go back to them and tell them how good Babylon is. It's always easier for us to hear something from people who are our own. We're always more open to listen to advice or feedback from people that are from our own people. How many of you guys know what I'm doing? This is Nebuchadnezzar's goal in the end. It's that these Hebrews will want to choose to stay in Babylon long-term as slaves because Bob Babylon is much better than what life was like in Judah. By raising up these men from within them, these men will be able to talk of this to the rest of the people and to convince them. Does that make sense? 
this brainwashing program lasts a total of three years. And there is three things that the chief of the eunuchs, Ashpenav, is supposed to teach them. First, these men are going to be renamed. Second, there is a re-education. And third, there is a reorienting of lifestyle. Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are given Babylonian names as part of their assimilation. Daniel is named Belshazzar. Hananiah is named Shadrach. Mishael is named Meshach. And Azariah is named Abednego. Now they're given Chaldean names. And a new identity that now ties them to Babylonian pagan gods. You see, the names they currently have, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, ties them to the God of the Bible. And so the king removes that identity to try to pull them away from their God and to place them under the pagan Babylonian gods. The goal here is to give these young teenage boys a completely new identity. That they would begin to think differently about themselves as no longer being Hebrews, but now being Babylonians. Second, Daniel and his three friends are trained in literature and in the language of the Chaldeans. The word Babylonian and Chaldeans means the same thing. They're to be re-instructed in Babylonian belief system, magic, enchantment, astrology, interpreting dreams, the pagan religions, along with all of their myths and legends. All of this is to replace what they know about their God. You see, the goal here is to change their belief system their values, and their morals to now reflect a Babylonian worldview. It's to replace all that Daniel and his friends know about God and to embrace a different way of thinking. I hope you begin seeing the parallels with where you and I find ourselves in this world. We are right now living in Babylon. Third, there is a reorienting of lifestyle. Daniel and his three friends are assigned a daily allotment of the king's food and of wine. By isolating these youth from their people and completely immersing them in Chaldean culture, the hope is that it would be able to eliminate all traces of God as their provider. That's the goal. Nebuchadnezzar wants Daniel and his three friends to depend on him instead of depending on their God. Nebuchadnezzar will give these young men the best that the kingdom has, the best food and the best drink as a way to entice them to desire the pleasures of Babylon so that they can taste what Babylon is like and desire it more than they would desire God himself. That is his hope. 
That's his end game. That's what he's trying to do. It's to change their lifestyle so that eventually their behavior will change. You guys hearing me? The easiest way to change someone's thinking and behavior is to change what they do. Many times it's behavior that leads the way we think. And this is the goal of Nebuchadnezzar. Let me allow them to have a different kind of lifestyle, to long and desire that lifestyle, so much so that they no longer want the lifestyle they had following their God. Can you see the parallels with our society, my brothers and sisters? This program is to last three years. And at the end of those three years, all of these candidates are to be brought before King Nebuchadnezzar so that he can test them. And like Madhu mentioned, it's not just these four candidates. There are many other young Jewish boys, young men, Hebrews of Judah who are in this assimilation program. I would like to contend that in these three same areas, you will see in our society that this is happening and that our people are trying to be indoctrinated to think and to believe certain things in a certain ideology. I want you to understand that it's not being done subtly or subversely. It's done blatantly right in our faces every single day. I don't know if you've noticed in our culture, there's a renaming that's happening right now. And it's happening amongst our children and our young people. Our society is telling them and pushing them towards changing their gender identity, their sexual orientation, and saying that they can be sexually fluid, all based on their feelings while they completely ignore their biological reality. Our society is pushing on our children and on our young people to go and discover themselves according to their own understanding instead of what the Word of God says. This is why today, if you look around, we have more and more young people who are experiencing gender dysphoria than ever before. Kids and young people are confused about their gender that was assigned to them at birth, being male and female, and they feel confused and feel like they might be the opposite gender. There are books regarding these topics that are made available in our elementary schools to our children. My friends, my brothers and sisters, we are living in Babylon right now. And we better be aware of it. Because there's only one thing that we have at our disposal to combat that. And that is the word of God. And if we choose not to stand on it and instead to listen to what this world says and the ideologies that it chooses to push on us, we will come to a place where we will begin to behave the way this world says. God help us. God help you and me. Not only that, our colleges and university campuses have become places where these, where these ideologies in our society are being propagated. Everything from abortion rights to medical assisted suicide. I don't know if you've noticed in our culture that both spectrums of life are being put in jeopardy. Our children are being killed before they're born and our elderly that are a burden on society are being allowed to take their own lives. We become a society of death. All in name of our rights. 
There's no longer open debate or dialogue on our university campuses where there's supposed to be places where you're supposed to ask questions, where you're supposed to have different opinions, where you're supposed to push one another, where you're supposed to have the freedom of opinion. And yet, people are only tolerant as long as you agree with them. When you disagree with them, you're censored. The voice of the minority is silenced. There have been university professors here in Canada who have lost their jobs simply by providing a different opinion on another side of an argument where students rose up and said that what was shared was harmful to them. My brothers and sisters, we are living in Babylon. God has given this society over to the prince of this era. The prince of this air is blinding the people of this world so that they cannot see the glory of God. My brothers and sisters, this is what 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says. Look. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do not be surprised. That this is the world that you and I find ourselves, and these are the ideologies that are pushed on us every single day. But listen carefully. Though God may be silent in Babylon, and in our day, He is still working, accomplishing His purposes. He is still faithfully at work, and He will continue to be in complete control, bringing about His will my brothers and sisters. And now this would leave us with a decision to make the same way that it left Daniel and his three friends. So we see that God is uncompromising. He will always be true to his word. He will always do what he says. And when his children disobey, he will bring discipline upon them because he loves them and to be able to restore them. And he works through all of that. And that's what we see in these first verses. And now we see an uncompromising people in our key verses, verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. In verse 8, we see Daniel is determined to not allow himself or his three friends to be defiled by the daily allotment and the drinking of wine. The word here for resolve in the original means to set one's heart. David sets his heart to not allow himself to be defiled by the king's food or the king's drink. David, Daniel will not compromise. He will not give in because he does not want to behave like a Babylonian, to start becoming like a Babylonian. What is it about the food portion and drink that was so wrong? And yes, there are many who do think that the reason was dietary. That there are many Old Testament laws that forbid eating certain kinds of meat. And that this is why Daniel chose not to. Others believe that all of the king's food would have been sacrificed to idols. Including the vegetables that Daniel chooses to eat. So we don't think that it's primarily for those two reasons. 
Though, yes, they make sense. Because all of the food, king's food would have been sacrificed to idols. The word for food here in the original means delicacies. It's important that we know this. Daniel and his three friends are eating the same food that the king eats. And guess what kind of food the king eats? The best of the best. And when does the king eat the best of the best? Three times a day. Every day. And this becomes the issue for Daniel. Daniel purposes in his heart. And he says, I'm not going to eat what Babylon has to offer me. Because I understand that this is a very subtle way of trying to convince me to find pleasure in Babylon. I understand that I'm being seduced and I'm being enticed to want what Babylon has to offer me so that I will begin to depend on that instead of on my God. And so Daniel is saying, listen, you can change my name. You can call me whatever you want to call me, but I know who I am. Daniel says, listen, you can teach me whatever you want to teach me. All of your philosophies and all of your ideologies, but I know the word of God. And nothing is going to change what I already know from God's word, even though I'm learning everything you teach me. But I draw the line when you start to want to change my lifestyle because I understand that in changing my lifestyle, eventually I'll be led to a place where I will no longer depend on God but begin to depend on Babylon. I want you to think, you and I, this is the subtle temptation of this world and what it has to offer us. And how subtly we begin to trust in what this world can give. The pleasures, the benefits, the luxuries. And where our hearts are slowly, slowly led to begin to depend more on this world and what it offers us instead of on God and on what he says. And so Daniel puts his foot down. He says, I don't want to be enticed or seduced by Babylon. I don't want to taste what it has to offer me because I've tasted God and there's nothing that tastes better than God. I have tasted and seen that God is good and there's nothing in Babylon that could be any better. So no, I don't want to eat your food. I don't want to drink your wine. This is a small moment of transformation in Daniel's life for him and his three friends. That's our theme for this year as a church, small moments of transformation. I want you to understand that this one decision of him not compromising, it sets the tone for the rest of the book. There is no book of Daniel without this moment. This moment sets the tone for everything else. Daniel knows that he is in Babylon, but he's not Babylonian. Daniel knows that he is in Babylon, but he is not Babylonian. Jesus says this to his disciples in John 15, 18, and 19. Stick with me. I know it's 1120. But I haven't preached in two weeks, so there you go. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus makes it clear that we are not of this world. You and I don't belong in Babylon. And you and I are not supposed to think like Babylon. We're supposed to think like God according to his word. Have you ever heard the saying, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy? There are other variations of that saying, right? And this is exactly what we see happening with Daniel and his three friends. You can take these young men out of their country and culture, but you cannot take them away from their God. And they will choose to resolve and to hold tightly onto their God. So what does Daniel do? He devises a plan. He's going to the chief eunuchs to Aspenath and ask him if he can choose not to be defiled along with his friends by just eating vegetables and drinking water. It's very likely that Daniel has to explain this. Right? He has to tell them. He has to share his faith. <laughs> Daniel is in Babylon and he's already preaching. Why? Because Ashpenaf grants favor and compassion. Why? Because God gave Daniel that. God gave Daniel favor and compassion before Ashpenaf. And Ashpenaf is like, whoa, listen, I hear you, I understand you, but do you know what's going to happen to me if when the king looks at you guys after three years and you look malnourished and skinny and scrawny, he's going to ask why you guys look that way. And I'm going to have to tell him, well, you know, they didn't want to eat the meat and he didn't want to eat the food and they didn't want to drink your wine, that's why they look like that, and then guess what's going to happen to me? The king is going to have my head and I'm going to die. But I feel you guys. I understand. It's as almost Ashpenaf is saying, hey, guys, if you can find another way, find another way. Because why? Because God gave Daniel favor. And so what does Daniel do? Now, here's where we as believers many times would say, hey, man, at least I tried, you know, but they said no. And so, you know, hey, I guess I have to eat the food. Is that what Daniel does? No, he persists and he insists. So what does Daniel do? He goes to the steward now. So Ashpenaf is very likely the chief eunuch. He is the chief of staff for King Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel goes to the next guy down the line, the steward. This steward is the one who likely is the one who is distributing the food to them on a daily basis. And so he approaches him with a plan. Hey, steward, listen. Let us just eat vegetables and drink water for 10 days. And after those 10 days, if we look any less fit, then listen, we'll go back to eating the food from the king. But if not, please let us keep this special. We just want to eat vegetables and drink water, okay? So the steward agrees. And guess who's watching? Ashpenath. Doesn't say anything. Doesn't get in the way. Daniel finds another way. 10 days go by. What happens? The Bible uses very specific language, right? At the, verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance 
and I know none of us like this word, but they were fatter in flesh. This fatter in flesh doesn't mean fatter. It means fatter. They were more fit. They were stronger. They looked better on vegetables and water than the rest of the candidates did on meats and wine. Why? Because God gave Daniel favor in the sight of Ashpenaz. Please indulge me a few minutes to clarify two misconceptions about this portion of verses 18 to 16. I hope you find this helpful. Two people focus, people focus on two things that I believe are misconceptions within these verses. One is fasting and the other is a vegetarian diet. None of which, either of these, is what's happening here in our text. I don't know if you know this, but there have been many books written about what's happening here. Books like The Daniel Plan, Daniel Fast Journey, The Daniel Fast Cookbook. I'm not making this stuff up. You can go to YouTube. You, sorry, you can go to Google. You can go to Amazon. Go check it out. Don't buy the books. Daniel is not fasting here. We believe in fasting. We believe it's a spiritual discipline that as believers we should practice. Yet this is not what Daniel is doing here. He's not trying to strengthen his spiritual life or do some kinds of cleansing. And so today... We hear things like the 10-day Daniel fast plan, which isn't even really accurate. Because in total, I'm going to see if you guys can get there, how long does Daniel fast from meat and from wine? Three years. Three years, not 10 days. Daniel isn't fasting here. He continues to eat just vegetables and water for three years along with Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. He's done this specifically so that he does not defile himself because he doesn't want to take on the orientation of Babylonian culture. Second, misconception, Daniel was not on a vegetarian diet. Is there anything wrong with a vegetarian diet? No. But that's not what Daniel is doing here. <laughs> just so you know, the text isn't promoting a vegetarian diet. I'm just saying. Again, Daniel's intention in abstaining from the king's delicacies in wine is not rooted in wanting to make a healthier decision. It isn't because he doesn't want to eat meat and his body is going to take so long to, bring, to break down the toxins of the meat. That isn't his goal here. It's important that we understand that. That's not the point. Daniel wants to remain pure before God by not taking on a new lifestyle that will tempt him to compromise his faith in God. So this text is not talking about dieting. This text is not talking about fasting. Amen? I would hope that you would agree with me that as you look at our world today, that we see that there's a big difference between the way the world thinks and with what God says. How many of you agree with me? There's a big difference. And if we're not careful, we can get stuck and caught and to begin behaving 
by having a lifestyle that is more consistent with the world than it is consistent with the Word of God. So please beware. Keep a peeled eye. Test every thought for your sake and for the sake of your children. We must be aware. And we need discernment of the Holy Spirit so that you and I can combat the deceitful lies and schemes of this world and the, the philosophies that it throws at us each and every single day. This is what Paul is meaning in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Look with me. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't allow yourself to be put in the mold of how this world thinks and what it believes and what it says. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and perfect, and what is good and acceptable and perfect. There is only one way that we can renew our minds. There's only one way. What is that way? There's only one way to know the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God. God has left us, has given us his divine revelation to show us and to lead us in all things. And the only way that you and I are going to be able to combat the lies and the deceits of this world and the schemes that it throws at us is if we know God's word. You want to know why I'm passionate about us knowing God's word? Because if we don't know God's word, we're going to fall prey to the lies of this world. That's why I want to encourage you guys. Our small groups are starting tomorrow. Sign up, man. Sign up. You're going to be going deeper in January chapter 1 next week. Sign up. Oh, but I don't know who the leader is. Who cares? Because you're going to go through God's word together. Oh, but there might not be a good leader. Be gracious. Be kind. Do it for the sake of the word of God in your life. Not for the leader. It's 90 minutes of your time a week. It blows my mind. Madhu was telling me that in these three days, he's read all of the book of Daniel in preparation. You know my, what I feel like saying to you, all of you guys? Next Sunday, all of you guys are going to come up here and share. And I'm just going to say this clearly. So our brother Sandeep, brother, please stand. Our brother Sandeep here is going to be responsible of finding somebody every week to, to, to read the book of Daniel. Not to do what our brother Madhu did in terms of reading it and then doing a devotional. That was amazing. That was a great brother. We just want the person to come up here and read the text. You guys with me? Listen closely to what I'm going to say now. We're going to ask people who do not participate here at Centerview in any way to do so. So you know who you are. So consider yourself invited. And Matthew's going to come out and reach out to you and ask you if you would, wouldn't mind reading just God's word. Amen? Why? This is the only weapon that we have. It's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. To teach us and lead us in all truth. So my hope and prayer for you is, my brothers and sisters, is to know that we need the truth of the Word of God. And let me just say this, right now in the U.S. there is a massive war happening with the possibility of Roe versus Wade being overturned and human and, and uh, abortion rights being taken away from people. And I pray that it would be so. This week, I read here in Canada that our country will be pledging $3.5 million in funding to two um, initiatives to, act, to improve access to abortion services. 
We cannot compromise what God says in his word. And God says in his word in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, that he is the one who gives life, and he is the one who takes it away. No one else. You and I cannot pretend to play God. It amazes me the arguments that I hear people making. Listen, there's only one way that you can have a baby. Right? So you know what you're doing. In the majority of cases. I'm not talking about the exceptions where somebody is raped or someone's taken advantage of. I'm not, but in the majority of cases, people know what they're doing. Yes or no? But we live in a world where people do not want to take responsibilities for the bad decisions they make. God have mercy. We're in Babylon, my brothers and sisters, but you do not, do not belong in Babylon. James made this clear. We went through this already at the beginning of this year. He says in 4, 4, chapter 4, verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is an enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You cannot have it both ways. You're with God or you're not. We can choose. Amen? My prayer is that we would make a good choice. My final point, and I hope that you're still with me, we have an uncompromising God. We have an uncompromising people in Daniel and his three friends. And then we have a faithful God. Verses 17 to 21, our key verses, verse 17. We've been looking at the God gaves. Look at the third God gave. For those, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. As a result of Daniel and his three friends' uncompromising resolve, God is subversively working his will through them in two ways. First, God gives them divine gifts. He gives them learning. He gives them skill. Amen? Who gives it? It's not their wisdom. It's not their own intelligence. It's not their strength. I have no doubt in my mind that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah worked hard in all that they were learning. But it was God who gave them everything they needed. It wasn't them. It was God. The second thing that God was subversely doing was giving them human recognition before King Nebuchadnezzar. The three years of their brainwashing program has ended. The king summons Ashpenath, the chief of staff, to bring in all the candidates. And now what is he going to do? He is going to do an oral examination with the whole group. And guess what happens? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah stand over and above the rest of the class. The answers they give are so much better than anybody else. And not only, Nebuchadnezzar gives them distinction. He says that they are 10 times better than all of the other magicians in all of Babylon. All of the magicians, all of the enchanters, there is no one. They are head and shoulders above anybody else. I don't know if you understand this, 
But in the matter of three years, these slaves who have been put into this indoctrination program, going from being nothing to now being heads of state in Babylon. All because of God's working and doing and because of his will being accomplished when maybe there were many days Daniel and his friends had no clue what God was up to. But they just chose to be what? Faithful. We will not compromise. We will not take on this culture. We will continue to be who God's called us to be. And what does God do? He gives. It was God. Now they're in elevated positions. Stand with me. And everybody says, Amen. God is faithful. God is faithful. By the end of chapter 1, these four slaves have been promoted to positions of distinction in the king's court. And it doesn't end there. Daniel kind of almost throws this in very nonchalantly. Verse 21. Look at what it says in verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't explain this little bit to you. Daniel is saying with this one last verse, he wants us to see as readers from the end to the beginning. Daniel is already telling us the end right here at the beginning. He's already describing to us the 70 years, 70, 70, the 70 years that he and the people of, of Judah spend captives in Babylon. And he's basically saying, God has been faithful to me and to our people throughout the whole time that we have been here. Because he dates this. Now he is serving under the king, Cyrus. Look at what it says in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 22 and 23. Listen carefully. How God uses this pagan king to accomplish his purposes. Now in the first year of King, now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, when was Daniel in power until? In Babylon? Remember, the first year of King Cyrus, this is the guy, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put in writing, verse 23, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, listen, the Lord, God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. What is King Cyrus saying here? If you're a Hebrew who has been here for 70 years and you were taken captive, you, your people, your children, and the God who has given me all of this empire, you can now go back home. And Daniel sees God's faithfulness through all of this. The Babylonian kingdom has now fallen, defeated by the Persians, and God uses King Cyrus to release Daniel and the captives back to the land. You see, God's faithfulness proves to be sufficient for Daniel and his people throughout the whole time that they are in captivity. Here is what you and I struggle with, is that we don't choose God's timeline. He does in his faithfulness. 
You know how fast we want our problems fixed? Microwavable. Right? You put the food in the microwave, you hit two minutes, you walk away, and when you come back, your food is nice and hot, warm, ready to eat. But we're not on our, but God is not on our timetable. We're on his. And Daniel's saying, God has been faithful. Because I know that my God is in complete control. My hope and prayer for you is, is that you would know that regardless of the circumstances that you're facing right now, that our God is faithful. And that he is in complete control and that his will will come to pass if you stay faithful and you hold on to his promises. Amen? Remember, who's the book of Daniel about? God. The one who is always faithful and the one who is always in complete control. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. You are go so, so, so good to us. And we thank you because you reveal yourself as being the God who is complete in control, always, all the time. You are faithful yesterday, today, and forevermore. We thank you. We thank you. We thankful. We are thankful that in our disobedience, God, you choose to discipline us because you love us, because you want to make us holy. And in the midst of even disciplining us and correcting us, you weave all things for our good as you are conforming us to become holy. God, and help us place ourselves in your hands, showing you to be the one who is faithful. You will carry out your plans and purposes. God, in the places in our lives where we are confronted with the, with the ideologies and the seedfulness of this world, we pray that we would be the kind of people who would not compromise. Give us the strength of your Holy Spirit as we stand on your word to not cave to what this world says. But help us stand strong in your truth because we know that you are faithful and you will be faithful till the end. Kingdoms will come. Kings will rise up. But then kingdoms will fall and kings will pass. But you, O oh God, will be faithful forever. Lord God, we pray for Ryan. God, who we went to the hospital this week. And we pray, God, for Maria and for Roland. God, we pray that you would be with them as their son is in the hospital. We pray that Ryan would completely recover. Father God, that you would put your hands upon this young man. God, that he would look to you to know that there is a God in heaven. Lord, as we worship now, we pray that we would respond with all of our hearts. Amen.